0: Hi and welcome to Seek Sustainable Japan podcast. I'm JJ Walsh, your host, based in Hiroshima, Japan. And in this episode, I have a chance to catch up with James Hollow, who is the CEO of Fabric, a Tokyo-based consultancy and business very focused on sustainability, and we're talking about their third set of data they've done three years in a row to try to find out how Japanese consumers think about sustainable brands, sustainable products, and sustainable lifestyle. Um, So the title of this year's Sustainability in Japan number three is the pathway to regenerative business. And different from previous years, there's uh, more focus on the idea of how happy people are uh, working at the moment and how that differs depending on generations also the idea of wellness inclusion uh, social impact aspects as well as uh, environmental aspects so i've had the chance to talk with james about previous studies and this third time uh, they decided to have a big event as well which i was able to go to in tokyo and that was a great chance to not only meet James and his team at Fabric who are doing such great work, but also to listen to some of the people from business who are talking about sustainable finance and uh, how they are putting into action sustainable strategies in their businesses or different case studies. So that was a fantastic event. And uh, in this episode, he's talking a bit about the event as well as the data and how they did their research and what comparisons they're able to make looking at the research three different years in a row. So I hope you enjoy it. And as always, thanks for listening. And if you have any comments or questions, please make sure to reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky and uh, threads at JJ Walsh, and you can find me at Instagram, Facebook, and on LinkedIn as well as Inbound Ambassador. I'd love to hear from you, and I'm sure James would be happy to reply as well your company, you are CEO of Fabric. It is a very sustainability-focused consultancy and it's very data-driven and you guys are doing that data collection to really understand how consumers think about sustainable brands. Is that right?
1: Yeah, thanks, Joy. Um, that's correct. So Fabric is a strategic design and sustainability consultancy. So. We sustainability is definitely a specialism of ours, but we're applying a strategic design method to everything that we do. Um, And strategic design really starts with understanding the problem space or the opportunity space that you're working within. Um, And we really put a focus on the human experience in that, so a human-centred design approach. Um, And by doing that, you know you really you sort of put yourself in the in the um, position of Um, the consumers or the employees and really trying to understand what it looks like from their point of view Um, and it often some of the things which maybe look strange or hard to understand when you see it from their point of view actually you can understand why for instance they're not adopting certain behaviors or why they're sort of choosing some things and not others Um, so we do have a very um, research focused approach and obviously data is really important in that I'd also just think, you know, stories are really important too. Um, so not that we make them up, but we synthesise all of the research from data, from the interviews that we do, um, and then turn those into narratives that help explain what's really going on. And those those narratives are really um, important because they help, you know, that, that's how ideas get adopted, understood, um, and popularised. So that sort of whole thing is part of what Fabric does. Um, but yeah, and it's great to have this chance again to share some of some of the uh, the data and the stories coming out of our our work in uh, this year
0: yeah we're gonna dive right into some of the key topics in this year um, cool. and how how it's progressing and changing over the last three years because you've you've been doing it since 2021 this yeah it's crazy. Third year it's... my goodness it must goodness. take most of most of the year planning and and carrying out the research Oh my god!
1: Luckily, some of it is we're just rolling over because we want to keep the, uh, you know, the consistency to track the changes um, kind of uh, rigorously. Um, But yeah, we have done a lot of new work, and I think one of the, um, one of the things we found coming out of last year was that um, we, you know, twenty twenty one was basically the baseline. So where's Japan at when it comes to sustainability? Um, And there's this um, kind of profile of the population against levels of it of consciousness towards sustainability Um, and most people we found to be at a low level essentially that that, and by that we mean that in their day-to-day interactions with brands when they go to the supermarket and choose brands when they're online shopping um, but also in their you know lifestyle habits as well they're not thinking that much about sustainability or value those values are not coming into their decision making Um, but we also found people at the other end who are really engaged with sustainability um who think about it a lot and maybe pretty much all of their brand choices a lot of their lifestyle is around reducing their impact and maybe trying to have more of a positive impact through the choices that they're making um, and so what we've been trying to do is essentially track the the shift um towards that that sort of uh society where where you know where we've got to get to essentially is where more and more people are thinking in that way um so yeah so the um what we found i think last year is that with with that second study compared to the baseline is that steadily Japanese people are moving towards um, higher higher levels of consciousness um, but the kind of pace of change is in the sort of like let's say under five percent per year um, so it's not something that's probably fast enough for Japan for instance to hit its own um, transition goals and so we asked the question well what would it take would it for, for the Japanese population to be able to move faster and to answer that, you kind of get into what are the barriers that people are facing, um, and that specific question wasn't one that we du- we, ta- we sort of uh, tackled head on, um, but we did get various signals around it, and um, we use this word, this Japanese word yo-yu, um, as a way of sort of capturing that, um, because there were various sort of pictures that emerged of people at the high consciousness end versus the people at the low consciousness end. And the high consciousness people tended to be, um, we didn't find it to be a kind of, let's say, just a financial privilege. Um, There was some slight sort of bias towards higher income, but it was really quite small and not really sort of one that would statistically you'd call, um, you know, determinative. Um, But things like having the time to read and absorb lots of information, Uh, being actually engaged with lots of brands and in and getting and being welcome to um, sort of advertising from brands or particularly ones that you you're interested in Um, and overall a kind of picture of a really engaged consumer and that's kind of was slightly surprising because um in the west and i think you know particularly let's say north america and europe that sort of really um we imagine the sort of greta thunberg gen z activist mindset driving sustainable transitions um, and whether that's true or not it's it's really isn't true in Japan. The people who are engaging most with sustainable propositions are actually really engaged consumers who are not rejecting capitalism, they're not rejecting consumerism, they're fully engaged with it. Um, and so I guess so. people who have been studying Japanese society may not be so surprised that the transition is likely to be one in Japan where people are moving together with each other, but also with big companies and with you know, the institutions and governments towards this future, rather than it being this kind of disruptive change with new startups coming in and challenging the status quo. We will see some of that, but it's not gonna be that kind of disruptive, activist-driven transition. Um, so that's something that um, we also wanted to validate with this year, this year's work, and also understand, so what are those barriers? Um, 60 i think if you get up the graph that shows that sort of population curve the the number of people in that low group is, sh- is coming down every year um and it's going towards sort of like 58% in the low group now um with most of the rest in the the higher um consciousness ends um but that's still the pro- the majority of the population are sort of basically not that switched on to sustainability in their daily life um and we had a hypothesis that that was to do with um, their their sort of uh, this yo-yo idea, and we try to address that formally by looking at their well well-being levels and self-rated well-being across eight different dimensions. Um, and yeah, the the sort of upshot is that is that we found that essentially our p- hypothesis seems to be correct that lots of people, and this is connected to their working environments and the sort of working context, are um, essentially just struggling to look after themselves and get themselves to a sort of, um, to the point of um, sufficient well-being to be engaging with um, new stuff. So yeah, thanks for flashing up these this data. So this is um, some of the other things we're tracking here, like what's important to you when selecting a company at work. This is looking at people's kind of values towards that. Um, and people are quite value driven in that, um, selection but obviously in japan compared to other companies they tend to change jobs less often um and we really see a difference in the generations there so if we use the western sort of definition of uh sort of those cohorts population cohorts at different age groups the baby boomers um gen x millennials and then the youngest are gen z we find that the top three tiers are quite sort of um still essentially hanging on to the traditional attitude towards um, employer in your employer um, and it's essentially somewhere where you know you really stick it out even if the company is not changing the way you want it to or you're you know it's not giving you the kind of balance work-life balance or well-being levels that you'd want you'd stick it out but actually the younger generation the Gen Z we've seen quite a big generational split there where they are basically saying if these conditions aren't working for me I'm gonna leave um, and I think that's Um, we've seen, because of the way that Japan does these transitions, we see a big role for employers um, to educate, to engage with, and to sort of support um, their employees' shift towards a sustainable lifestyle. Um, But um, they may need to move a bit faster on that, um, and the Gen Z cohorts within their companies um, will not hang around forever Waiting them for, to make those changes and when we're talking about that yeah the majority of Japanese you know our, our work and we do a very sort of robust um, quantitative study that's representative of Japan across all geographies all age groups um, and these underlying structural reasons um, are really key to it so the seniority-based um, promotion structure in Japan basically you're salary compensation and your seniority depend on how long you've been there not on you know basically it's not a meritocracy not on your performance um, that's been a sort of let's say um, a constant and a sort of seen as something that's ensured security for Japanese society um, and hence many of the leaders who are kind of supporting that still are maybe feeling that they're doing a, the right thing for Japanese society by not changing it um, the Gen Z are basically calling that out and saying, "Well, that doesn't work for me. I'm not going to wait here 30 years so I can you know have that salary at that position. It's just not something I can commit to um, And yeah it's I think in that sense um, there, that this demographic sort of pressure on Japan um, where you've got a, a decreasing birth rate and hence a, a much sort of smaller um, Gen Z population than in previous generations, that basically means in the labour market, it's a kind of labour sellers' market, and the buyers, the employers, are going to have to work much hard to keep them. And I think you know what part of um, our work suggests that actually that's going to be one of the ma- major drivers of change in policy towards employees, and also then towards you know these issues which connect really directly back to sustainability, like well-being, um, like um, equal. E- opportunities um for females um yeah so that that's kind of the the big trend overview picture um i'll pause there in case you um want to dive into any of those areas
0: there's so many interesting points to talk about but i think this year Uh, your data did have these new uh, elements to focus on about well-being, about tipping points as well, I found really interesting. And not only the consumer surveys that you did, but also really interesting in-depth interviews are included in your uh, magazine, publication, what do you call it?
1: Yeah, I guess it's a book now. It's it's a
0: book, yeah. 250
1: pages. So let me just um, share with, with your um, Follows, Joe. that we've got so every year we do put it out this year we've we've made a 250 page book which is available for download as an ebook for free um, it's bilingual um, and it includes um, basically explanations of the data that we found and the trends that we're watching as well as um, these interviews with um, about a dozen thought leaders um, who've Who've brought their sort of really insightful perspectives um, to this theme, um, and most of those are uh, who are uh, working business um, from running extremely large companies like um, Jin Montesano, who's the um, chief s- chief people officer at Lixil, um, Eriko Suzuki, who's the um, founder of Kind Capital, um, a fund which focuses on sort of really being aware of well-being and um, the, how how the companies that they invest in are um, are thinking in terms of the social dimensions of sustainability, not least with their own people, um, from academics, um, people working who driving startups. So it's a really interesting mix of perspectives, um, all sort of focusing on this nexus of um, of the, of work and well-being, and how that is either enabling or or holding back a kind of a broader sustainable. Um, transition for society.
0: Uh, I will put the link right now, um, and it's on the Fabric website. So if you sign up, uh, you can download your own copy. I love that you you guys have made it bilingual, completely Japanese and and English bilingual, but also all the easy to follow graphs uh, so you can follow the, how the data is changing over the years. Um, The interviews, great photos and graphics, but just making it available and accessible to everyone, this is kind of rare in sustainable research uh, in Japan and around the world, and it's so valuable for people across many different kinds of industries, and you must use it in your own consulting work as well, right?
1: Yeah, and so Fabric is, um, we're a for-profit company, but we founded ourselves with um, a mission to to kind of give back to the community and to sort of really, um, you know, part of the fabric metaphor is we wanted to interweave ourselves with um, with our community and with the the, the other change makers um, who are making who are driving innovation in in the you know towards the right side of history, and um, we basically committed to doing this study and for making all of the data and the results public so that other people in our community and any changemaker who's trying to get something going in an organization could have the data to back up their case and say, well, this is what, this is the reality. Whatever you may have sort of heard through rumors, this is actually what's going on. Um, so that's, you know, one of the ways that is part of our community program and, and sort of contribution. Um, and so we'd love it if people, you know, um, downloaded that, Used it in their work. Um, I think we're um, we're going to be working with some academics outside of Japan who look very specifically at well-being in the workplace. um, With RSJ three data, Um, we've made it available for NGOs and nonprofits um, before, so they can use it when they're going engaging with with um, potential partners and clients. Um, So yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. Um, Thank you for liking the designs. Like, um, obviously. We really pride ourselves on the quality of the communication. It's super important because, you know, basically dry stuff isn't as you know isn't as compelling and doesn't drive the imagination. So, um, our visual designers and um, strategists who've have, have written it um, and made the graphs, you know, visualizations really um, interesting. Yeah, we I'm very grateful to you guys. Thanks, thanks everyone. Um, I get to talk about it, but they've done all the hard work to make it such um, a beautiful and compelling piece piece of communication. So we're really proud of that. Um, the There is going to be a, a physical copy. Um, we've been working with um, a Okawa printers in Japan who actually have a zero carbon um, printing service. Um, so without any of the guilt of a 250 page uh, book, um, the you can get hold of you will be able to get hold of a um, a hard copy and anyone who buys a ticket to the event on the thirtieth will get one as part of the kind of event pack um, as complimentary. So yeah, we're we're proud of that too. It's a really it's going to be hopefully a really inspiring artifact for people to have um, around them in their places of work and uh, and creativity.
0: Yeah it's awesome. It's really an important legacy that you are doing at Fabric. It's not it's it's kind of how I think about this talk show too, right? It's it's always going to be there uh, for people to access as a part of history where we are when we're talking about sustainability right now in Japan. And I think you're really doing that with your work with Fabric and collecting data and consulting and sharing it with the public as well. So thank you so much for your team and you, James, for all well, the work you're thanks. doing. Well, thanks,
1: gonna, you're gonna get me teary here. I'm, no, I mean, but also, um, you know, chapeau to you, Joy, For all, I mean, you're an inspiration to me as we, you know, as I set up Fabric and got it going, Um, what you've done off your own back you know has been incredible and I really congratulate you and are grateful for all your efforts um this has got to be a team game right so I think you know what with fabric we're trying to do is is um is show that we can be a you know really strong profitable business but do it in in a different way and sort of live and breathe and walk the talk on on a sustainable model um and so we're always trying out new stuff like in our office um, we use we have we have a, a worm composting system in our office um, that's obviously reducing our our sort of uh, our waste but also helping um, our team and any guests we have come in get familiar with the idea of you know putting of recycling um, nutrients back into a soil and and using that um, to grow new stuff We have um, zero plastic um, station like a hub a refill station where you can bring in um, reusable you know basically kind of um, containers and fill up with um, shampoo body wash detergents so that you can remove plastic from um, from that area that area of your sort of of your life um and basically, we're trying lots of different things to encourage a more sustainable lifestyle and kind of weaving that into the experience of being part of our team and community. So you've been... Think-
0: awesome. You're, you're walking the walk. You're well, not just to. talking the talk. I love it.
1: <laughs> we try to. We've got some good questions coming in as well, I think. Yeah,
0: That's yeah. Super- uh, we want to give a shout out to Real Rural Japan. Thanks for your comments on YouTube. Uh, talking about the legacy of Hiroshima business style. Now, in your report, you do talk about sampo yoshi and yo. sorry, I'm saying it wrong, um, but the idea of, of well, well-being, feeling of well-being, but also the hierarchy and the dissatisfaction that a lot of young people are feeling uh, for the seniority, like you talked about before. So talking about it, dating back to World War II, yeah. I would say, I would say even further back because it it connects to the apprenticeship system in Japan and uh, le- being a sword maker. It, it dates back well beyond there, right?
1: Yeah. No. Thanks. Thanks very much, Real Real Japan. I think you might be more clued up than me on this. What one of our interviewees um, told us was that that system dates back to the pre-war sort of the the military. Um nationalist era in the sort of twenties and thirties when they were basically looking at what does a militarized society look like, and particularly with the sort of the the progression of um, male military careers, and had to sort of map where someone, how many family, how many children they need to be supporting at the age of like by thirty-five versus forty-five, and then sort of basically map that to income, um, and created this hierarchical system. That was then basically projected from the military back onto civil society and business um and that system was um was was sort of uh became the norm i didn't know the context with Mac- with macarthur and that era but um i think culturally it stayed there because essentially it feels um like a it's social security it sort of feels like the um it, it's a a rock on which society can sort of you know anchor itself in terms of that predictability um, but it's I you know and I think so often people look at that and, and various aspects of Japanese culture and think oh that's so stupid that's so dumb why would they do it like that but it's actually you know in its own in this context it's worked very well for a long time in mean, Japan's been an economic miracle um, certainly up to the bubble and even since I think Japan's man- managed that post-bubble economy you know in ways that I think the uh, other countries as they've as they sort of um, face a sort of you know post-industrial era will increasingly come to appreciate as basically being pretty well managed um but we really feel that that system has just got to go um and it, it's holding too many important changes back now um and i think you know it, it is going to change if you look at say the interview with jen montesano chief people officer at Lixil, you know, they no longer run that system um, yeah, there's Jin, and she. So um, what Jin and her team are doing is is taking a really sort of insight-based approach, a very human-centric, humanist approach to transitioning a massive global organisation towards that, and particularly that that context here in Japan um, to a more meritocratic system. And um, I think you could read um, read up on what Jin said that in our report. Um, but, you know, many companies in Japan, um, the Toyotas, Panasonics, you know, they, they're they still grappling with that. They haven't really started on that transition, although they have started on lots of other things. Um, um, and then you have the sort of startup scene where you've got ventures which are sort of starting out and wondering, OK, should we be modeling ourselves on a Silicon Valley company or modeling ourselves on, you know, trying to be the next sort of Panasonic, Panasonic, or Toyota or these. And, you know, working out what kind of systems they need for that um, and what kind of people programs. And you know, I think Japan will synthesize this combination of, of the traditional and the modern, referencing the you know international best practices and what's what's worked there, but also doing, to be honest, continuing to, to find its own own path there. We definitely see it moving away from the traditional models, but not necessarily just snapping um, to be in line with what's happening elsewhere either
0: yeah, so interesting. I've also linked your medium article. So you have uh, taken some of the the key points from the the big summary of data, and you've written some great articles on medium. Um, so that's that's worth following and and getting a little insight uh, if you're not going to take on
1: the 120 plus yeah. pages yeah, um, but, thanks yeah. A lot, yeah it's a good place to dip in we we sort of um, pre-released some of the articles on there and that that channel is something that will be we publish to um, stuff that's not even in that report but actually everything right now that's on that medium they'll all be in the report so if you download the uh, the the ebook um, they'll all be contained within that um, but yeah please do follow us on medium as well um, and uh, LinkedIn and Instagram, we, we're active too, as well as, as Twitter.
0: Awesome. And bef- before we move on too much, I think one of the, the key indicators or key takeaways from your report was about how younger generations are, are really concerned with gender equality in Japan. And this is a huge issue in Japan still. The latest government uh, is all completely 100% men, uh, the manual and this, is, you know, hasn't happened since 2001, but James, when you do the report, when you have your event, we notice, people who notice these things, we notice your, your walk in the walk, and showing how gender equality, gender balance is really important, and thank you so much for that, we need more of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, don't thank me, I mean, it's the it's the brilliant thought leaders that you know, we've we've lined up, you should be thanking. It's 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 just a shame that like you say, there's so many events happen where um they just essentially s- stick with the old boy the old guy networks and you know, that they're, they're not representing a, a a completely balanced perspective from that. And that has been yeah, that does really need to change at all levels. I mean if you, if you look at there's a couple of um we we look every year look at this um people's understanding, essentially, their literacy with the SDGs. I don't know if you've um, got that to hand, but um, I, yeah, there we go. So if you look at Japan's top five issues, as um, according to the UN SDGs indices, um, you've got this. So this is from the middle at the top is number one. Um, that's sort of uh, life underwater. Action on climate change is number two, which is good alignment because they're also in the top five kind of priorities or top f- um, for, for Japan as a nation. Um, if you look at gender equality, number five, it's down there in 13th place. Um, now, when I say 13th place, that means when we ask Japanese people um, what which of these concepts do you associate with the term sustainability or jizoku say in Japanese, um, without referencing SDGs or anything, um, this is what they say. They basically 35% own, and you could see, look at this and think, well, only 35.7% associate Um, life underwater or climate, you know, on climate 35% with with sustainability. Um, But that's because this is a new kind of cultural import Japan's been aware of sustainability issues for a long time. I mean, the whole issue of depopulation in, in rural Japan, that's a sustainability issue. It just hasn't been called that word. And so the SDGs, that framing and this definition for sustain, this globalised framing of sustainability, is is a new thing, and it's come in, um, and Japan's still catching up. Now, obviously, look, government, this is SDGs, is a, is a national um, uh, sort of set of a goals framework for for co- countries, but companies have also jumped on it but actually they need all of society, because this is how Japan works, to kind of come along with it. And so to some extent, everyone needs to be aware of this, the reasons behind it, what it connects to. And so this sort of literacy and engagement with this is actually a really important factor. And the great news is that it's growing like quite quickly. Um, so if you look at that plus, th- plus 11, 12, 13%, this is, we're seeing a really strong growth year on year of the number of people who associate these concepts with this idea of sustainability. We think that's th- through, at last, the work of the media, the wide shows covering this, people may be hearing about it through work. Um, so this is really good. But to your point on gender equality, only 25% of people really link that to sustainability. Um and so that's going to take a lot more work, and even, so when you split this between men and women, um, something like, I think 20% of men link it, and uh, only 20% of women. So for a lot of the, the population, including the female population, this is that these two issues are not seen as sort of, like, level, or they d- maybe don't see a gender equality issue in Japanese society. There was also, when we look at that by gender, oh sorry, when you look at that by generation, um, when you've got those four generations, um, we see a sort of a more environmental bias at the at the higher um, age range, um, where they're sort of looking more at climate change being ex- existential risk, um, that taking action is really important, um, and that's also true of the younger generations. But number one of their concerns is actually um, equitable pay, not across gender, but just like for themselves, like having enough, having for pe- for their incomes to be. Um, essentially fair in the context of society and so financial well-being um, having being paid enough money to sort of have the life that you you want to live that's seen as being the number one sort of sustainable sustainable issue for younger generations which is really telling um, and important because until you sort of fix these basic needs on, on well-being and there are some other dimensions we looked at as well it's going to be hard to persuade people that they should you know take other actions um, that lead to um, let's say having a less an, in, an impact on the environment or making changes that will require some thought and engagement from their part so um, and the role of companies in that is really crucial um, you know it's not like these companies don't have cash they're sitting you know the big Japanese companies have 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 done very well sort of in the um, Abenomics era they've their coffers are full of cash it's not that they can't pay it they just don't have that as a priority um so you know hopefully our work will contribute that to actually if you want to have happy employee you know happy productive creative imaginative employees imagining a new future for for company society and their own lives you're gonna actually have to meet some of their more basic needs like paying them a bit more but also really enabling them to to feel a greater sense of um emotional security to feel even as females or as other um, marginalized minorities really embraced and accepted. Um, and then you get into that whole the whole DEI space, which is again another area where um, Japanese companies, you know, some of the some some companies do a very good job on this in Japan. It's definitely is an in- increasingly important issue. Um, it's also crucially, I think, being seen um, through the ESG framework of you know the ESGs are kind of how investors measure um, the risk that certain business models are carrying um, as they move into a more, you know, basically a future w- where the context is fr- context is framed around environment for E, um, sort of so- society um, and governance. And if they aren't able to adapt to change, if they aren't able to sort of come up with new ideas and and shift. Then that's a risky investment because they're going to have to and. You know, there's very robust work that shows that um the more diverse points of view you have in an organization um and the better the well-being of that of that, in, the, that employee team the more able they are to embrace change to be creative to come up with new solutions um and so investors particularly outside japan are starting to see that s score um and the and the DEI in particular, as kind of um, a proxy for ability to innovate. Um, And you could, you know, so that's a really significant thing, because you could kind of, you know, diversity is a bit of a num, is a bit of a, you can almost do that by numbers, you know, by, you know, but actually, in terms of culture, in order to get everyone feeling like they belong there, and hence emotionally safe to be able to actually engage collaboratively, creatively, in innovation and drive positive change not just for sustainable agendas but just actually to to create new growth and to find new areas of um, sort of shared value with your customers that can drive competitive advantage these things required require you know that that um, employee base to be in a good place um, and to be able to work collaboratively with so that and that's really dependent on in, the feeling of inclusion um, some companies now include um, DIB, belonging, the sense of belonging, um, and some some investors, and you know, I've I've spoken to them, met them, are looking at Japanese companies and thinking, okay, well, if they can't shift that, then I don't, I'm not going to bet on them to be able to um, to sort of change. Um, in many other ways, Japanese companies are really strong and and seen as really um, sort of a good bet in in you know in the global context. And The Japanese economy, with actually very strong regulation, transparency, and, you know, lots of standardized accounting practices, etc. is a very um, good bet, and you see that from inbound investment. Um, But in this area of human capital, um, that's an area where there's increasing focus, and hence, you know, that's one of the reasons we've been looking at this area in particular for our report, and we'll be talking more about it on the 30th.
0: Yeah. Excellent. So many excellent points. Thanks, James. Uh, we've had some great comments. Um, Darren is asking about how the government response has been in terms of sustainability. Uh, real world Japan, of course, talking about the paradox. Uh, you have to lift prices to lift pay to take care of your your staff. Um, but let's touch on Darren's point, because I think that's one of the things Uh, when you do the question about whose responsibility is it? Um, How do consumers consider the government's role in terms of uh, moving sustainability forward? It's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, hey, Darren, good to see you. Darren's down in Australia. I was really lucky to have the chance to meet him earlier this year. It's a great question. Um, So the government, yeah, so this question is about who do people see as kind of responsible for addressing social and environmental challenges? And um, you no, know, we don't have this data for the US or the, the EU or the UK, but um, it, I suggest it might look somewhat different. Um, government is definitely up there, but large companies, um, you know, they are, they are seen as responsible as well, particularly, I think, in Japan as, as employers. Um, the media um, are also up there. Um, And then global organizations and individual people it's kind of it's it's lower down which i think is i'm not sure how that would exactly be elsewhere but i think you know traditionally um foreign corporations like say in the us when there was a big plastic waste issue first in the 50s they made it like the the consumers problem and said okay well this is a recycling trash problem or a trash problem whereas i think japan (laughs) japanese are a little bit more sort of uh, maybe um, realistic and thinking, well, like we're part of a, you know, this isn't all about individuals. We're part of a kind of a system here. um, And we need the, essentially the, those with power and authority in this to drive that. Um, And I think that is fair. And so this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be all about um, putting all of the sort of pressure on people as consumers or as employees or like, you know, you've got to change your ways to solve this. Um, that's not possible. They're, you know, as our study has shown, you know, most of them are basically just just struggling to get to sort of get along psychologically and and financially, or that's how they feel. They don't feel like they've got lots of sort of spare capacity to jump on new stuff and engage with it. Hence, that's that you know the idea that that's the biggest barrier. But um, in terms of the government's commitment, so um, you know we the The Japanese government, I think, can be um, complimented for showing the right signals. So it really does indicate the direction of travel required on carbon, for instance. So it's got its 2050 decarbonisation, economic decarbonisation programme on um, human capital. So the the Ito report that it um, commissioned um, and essentially published um, a couple of years ago, Headed by uh, Professor Ito from Hitotsubashi University, was all about how big Japanese employers need to come up for the first time with a human capital strategy, which um, focuses on um, how to transform their cultures. Um, It included gender and diversity. It included um, sort of equity and pay, and essentially challenging that those traditional um, sort of pay, pay seniority structures. Um, it didn't really say how though, um, and it didn't put in. Sp- and and you know, typically, the Japanese government will not put through law or regulate or sort of regulations into law that that say you must do this by this time. Um, you've seen that, say, with plastic in France, where they've just outlawed disposable plastic, um, which you know is a great move and and um, well done France for leading on this. Um, I don't think you're going to see that kind of. Uh, regulatory sort of like the, a lot of the Japan, often the Japan sort of approach don't really have teeth as as policy changes. They're more sort of pushing in that direction and look for public private partnership to then drive towards that. Um, and so that tends to be how things change. So, in answer to Darren's question, I think the 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 Japanese governments they 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 do get all this. Um, they they aren't just sort of you know old bureaucrats who don't know what's going on in the world there's a lot of really smart people working towards this but the style of government here and the sort of like contract they have with business and society is not going to be um you know if we look at his historically it's not going to be um new regulations with real teeth it's it's going to be this is the direction we all need to go on let's let's go there together and work together towards that and so let's say you see with the 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 I think third arrow of Abenomics with um, labour reform. You know, that hasn't they, they've been pushing Japanese companies to pay their people more for a long time, and they just haven't done it. And that's an example where um, you know I think it's the, the weakness of the Japan approach, where you know something really does need to happen. But when you just on a systemic level, it's obvious. But then when you're the CEO or the C-suite of one company, um, you know it's hard when you've got all these different pressures from your to meet your uh, demands for organic growth from your investors you also now ESG scores also all these things it's hard for them to sort of let's say um, look at it from the systemic point of view and they'll just maybe think in terms of the next quarter um, and and not take those sort of important changes that are needed for the long term
0: Thanks so much for that. So many great insights there, James. Uh, now, in this report, you talk about tipping points. And there are some like quick takeaways mm-hmm. that I'd just like to touch on. Uh, so 22.8% of the people you surveyed said they would like to invest in sustainable companies. And this is uh, sustainable investing is is one of the, the key points that you've had uh, from one of the speakers as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, particularly on er- Eriko's um, piece there. I think, so we looked at, within the study, we looked at a bunch of different behaviors. Um, so from doing more more recycling and sort of being more careful, like say, trying to avoid buying plastic or avoid packaging with lots of plastic. And so this idea of sort of um, which is like, it's kind of a shame to waste things, right? That's a very traditional Japanese mentality. Um, and we've kind of, most of the changes we've seen where actually new behaviors have been adopted have been in this sort of like incremental changes to behavior, like quite small small stuff, really important, are needed, um, but not say, I'm gonna switch all of my electricity to, to zero carbon electricity, or I'm gonna buy an, like um, an EV. Um, the, but what we've seen is that lots of people have said, I'm interested in that. And so when we talk about tipping points, those incremental changes are important, but they're not going to drive a tipping point in, in say, you know, the um, the per capita um, c- carbon intensity of the economy. That's there needs to be some more dramatic changes, and so we're trying to measure that um, the potential for for more sort of let's say phase changes or sort of you know switching the system over to to let's say from gasoline to EV, etc. And what we're seeing is that. Whilst the number of people who've actually adopted that change is in the few percent the number of people who are like i'm kind of interested in that is actually really big it's up to sort of you know depending on which one we're looking at sort of 30 40 percent um, and the one you had there was investment in companies so um that you know that's a, a another really interesting indicator that um this awareness and sort of like potential for change is there um we also had another question i think it was it came out of the 2022 work where where we asked cons- consumers sort of um uh, and we were looking at their agency as consumers and that kind of ability to to like to do dollar voting with your purchases so like you know you choose stuff that represents the change you want to see um and the idea of having an impact through your um consumer choices and there was we actually saw that, that this the kind of peak of that was at the moderate group rather than the high group, which and and essentially I want to have an impact, but I don't know how. Was at about sort of forty percent in that moderate group, in the highest group where you know they want to, they even more want to have an impact, right? They're all about trying to have an impact, but they already know how because they've done the research. They've they're in communities where they're being shared ideas and recommendations all the time. Um, but that sort of actually peak of that, I want to have an impact, but I don't know how it's kind of a sweet spot for, for brands and businesses to innovate, because it basically means, well, if you make it easy for me, if you give me a way of having less of an impact or having a positive impact, I'm going to take that as long as it's not too difficult too like Mendokasai in Japanese, too sort of inconvenient and too expensive, I'll probably still reject it. But if you basically make it easy for me, like I'm down. And so I think this is the challenge, and we we get really excited about this as designers and business model designers and service and product designers. Like, it's an innovation challenge. It's a design challenge. Like the potential in society to flip, you know, really big categories over to much more sustainable practices and models is already there. Um, but the majority are not saying like, oh, I need this right now. Um, they're sort of showing that like, well, make it easy for me, and I, I can make it happen. And yeah. so.
0: I, I I really am interested in in this, the cost parity. The price parity is a really important concern, right, when you're making that change. The quality and the price, uh, that's long been the case. I was in Ikea in Fukuoka, and they had their plant-based fare. And everything, all the main things were plant-based, vegan, vegetarian, instead of the usual meat things. And it was amazing to see, you know, there were a few meat options, but everybody was choosing the the plant-based option because it was new, because it was the same price as they were used to. It looked similar to what they were used to, so I think you're right, James. There's so much opportunity for companies to to know that information and to make more sustainable options easily available looks like the quality they're used to those kinds of things right
1: totally yeah no i mean pricing is really hard to get at in a survey i think you know it's people infamously say oh you know i'll pay a green premium i'll pay a sustainable premium um in a survey but then when push comes to shove in the supermarket or, or restaurant it often doesn't happen um and and you know for and you know for fair enough um But I think the um, things are things are changing Um, and like you say, you see in the food industry um, that kind of new new, um, options coming through that, you know, essentially are giving people who are maybe not ethically or sort of for sustainable values um, demanding um, the change, but when they see it and it's a kind of Oh yeah, I can get. I get to say that you know I went no meat today, because my friends have been talking about that recently, and that's made easy, delicious, accessible, and with price parity, then things start to move. Um, and so you know that's some of that could be done just I think with a bit more imagination, actually, and the kind of changes that you're talking about, because so much of the meat that gets consumed, I mean you. don't really it doesn't have to be meat i mean even if you're not right but then there are other areas where i mean actually industrial change does need to happen i mean so we talk a lot about plastic waste in japan um japan's been dealing with its waste uh, you know through incineration um as a part of a waste to energy system so um in the context of an economy that basically gets most of its electricity and and heat Uh, Industrial heat and heating for, like, say, old people's homes and swimming pools, through burning fossil fuels. um, The practice of taking like mixed waste and incinerating it, um, thereby cleaning up essentially from a hygiene point of view. These, you know, in these massive cities that we have here in Japan, but also then turning that that heat into electricity, and using it for, like, say, local local heating. Um is a is actually a pretty sensible practice. and um, it's actually this view, you know if you look at the West, um now a big economies are sort of going over to that system. Um, and but this is the thing you have then with uh, you know Japan has a uh, thermal recycling sort of uh, policy right where um, the official numbers for recycling of pet bottles is really high but that, because it, that's because it includes thermal recycling, which is burning them. So these issues are complex. And so you're shaking your head and it's, you know, it feels abhorrent to be doing that. But you know, if all of your electricity or 90% of your electricity is coming from burning fossil fuels, um, then why not burn the plastic waste as well?
0: Yeah. But when it's fed to the public as recycling and it's not really recycling, that's not transparent. That's not honest. That's not the system that we want. That's not for
1: sure. No, I'm down. Right. And it's not. I mean, to be honest, yeah, it's not really fed to the public. It's more about that. I think how it's perceived from outside um, and, and how Japan sort of does its numbers for the external sort of frameworks so no
0: internally too though because we often do cleanups we'll do monthly Mm. cleanups on the beach and i'll talk about how we pick up a lot of pet bottles and uh they're not less than 18 percent are actually recycled into anything else most of them are burnt and so many people on social media are like i had no idea
1: no totally and what needs to happen there i mean that's why my point was not that we should continue burning my point was that. The the big system, the big systemic problem is that 90% of the energy still comes from burning fossil fuels. That really needs to change. PET, you know, PET plastic is a, you know, it's a a beautiful substance. Like this thing is like fossilized carbon. It actually has incredible robust properties. And so, you know, in all the spectrum of plastics, PET is one that can be recycled. You know, I think you can turn a PET bottle into another PET bottle about 10 times before it gets too cloudy for it to be really so you, you could look at that as a as you know this is and this is what Jap- like japanese systems trying to do is like well we can just recycle pet bottles um and that those those are cert- that's essentially a circular material in the same way that aluminium is for cans now you could also say well why you know why do we why do people be needing to buy pet bottles in the first place um you know look at my mizu and all the great work that that they do and just carry a my bottle and refill it and because the water is super safe here um, and that's a much better lifestyle solution um, but you've you know you, there's a there's also a whole population that's basically kind of used to just you know whenever thirst appears in their brain they go through you know between one and 30 meters to a a, a machine and, and buy one right so that's that's a kind of behavioral sort of um inbred behavior essential behaviors built into people's um, lifestyle that needs to, that will take time to change and so yeah I, you know that that we need that sort of the change at the personal level but also at the system level and that's what you know it's not just Japan that's grappling this but I mean I would be in favor of the government sort of really pushing through laws that drive change um, and just outlawing it but it's you know that's not going to happen and it's a it's probably going to be more about various parts of that system pushing in the right direction and kind of like as a society together traveling towards it um that's probably the theory of change that's going to be most relevant in japan but it's
0: yeah it's a great discussion thanks so much james uh, we have so many great comments you guys are amazing uh if all soft drink bottles uh were like in the past you had to pay a deposit and reuse yes 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 let's bring that back um darren's asking about the issue of greenwashing we haven't touched on that yet um before we touch on that i would love to talk a little bit about regenerative because that's one of the keywords that you're using uh for this year's publication so the idea of people as nature people Hmm. as a part of nature with nature not people as stewards of nature is one of the key differences i think between sustainability and regenerative is that right
1: yeah i think regeneration regenerative um sort of mindsets approaches is going to be the key concept um kind of going from this sort of sustainability framed era kind of like doing less from doing less good to doing um sorry from a doing less harm to a doing more good kind of mindset, um, and it does. Um, I think the work, let's say, in the book Regeneration by Paul Hawken and um, and all the contributors to that, this idea that you know we've kind of ended up imagining ourselves as not part of nature, and that's kind of inherent in it. That we are, you know, we are a biological life. We depend on other biological life, um, and essentially regeneration as a concept is to adopt systems and models that um, through the, their very sort of, the, how they work, um, they regenerate life, which means creating more diverse life and creating essentially better conditions for the life itself. Um, and applying that, let's say, to a business model with a, you know, that depends on an agricultural supply chain, um, it's quite tangible or intuitive because you can say, okay, that. That agricultural system is either a monocultural input-based um, disaster that's putting loads of um, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and loads of poisonous chemicals into our in, into the rivers and, and land. Um, so that needs to become regenerative, which means a more complex system that actually creates more life and more diversity and supports biodiversity, as well as providing the yields to go into our into, into our products that humans can eat. The the, it also applies to, you know, to our lives, um, not necessarily in just sort of uh, you know, procreation and making more children, but actually make making our lives um, closer to nature, um, more directly embedded in natural systems. Um, us understanding our interdependence with other with other biology and other um, sort of complex um, environments and ecologies. Um, but also, our you know, our own lives as um if, when it comes to w- being w- well-being on a personal level to being um part of enriching communities being able to actually contribute to those and and have the that word yo-yu, that kind of um emotional and um so lifestyle capacity to actually give back and be part of a you know more of a um of a, of reciprocity with communities and other um sort of social structures that's that's really key to this because you know, we've ended up in a place, you know, which which doesn't look like that, and where we are very separate, separated from these systems, and we we don't feel on a daily level our interdependence with biological systems. So regeneration is a concept that you know we're really keen doesn't just become a kind of the next buzzword, is misunderstood, kind of abused, and ends up not being this you know really important concept that we can use as a leverage point for um, for change. Um, that's part of the reason that we've we're using it um, and we think it applies you know really sort of uh, well to this this what Japanese companies can do and their role as employers and, and investors in um, future growth and change so yeah it does it makes a lot of sense
0: yeah awesome very important um, that we also give credit to our indigenous knowledge you know and way way back uh, through generations I was talking with a, a Buddhist uh, monk expert the other day and he's talking about the same concept of people as a part of nature we are included in our environment, we are equals uh, we are not stewards so this you know is ancient philosophies um, that we yeah. need to bring back right, these are great ideas.
1: Yeah I mean that idea of sort of kin um, you know, kith and kin that we've if um, the that sort of indigenous wisdom that where you don't see non-human life as as other, you see them as kin, and that you know that there isn't this separation. Um, I mean, without it, it, that can feel a long way away from some you know from life in Tokyo, where you know you probably don't touch anything organic, <laughs> other than the food from the refrigerator. Like in a week, right, for most people. Um, uh, organic as in like, you know, you know, you're walking on pavements, you're touching metal, etc. Um, and so kind of like there's that rewilding movement of re- rewilding our lives. Actually, one of the things that we've been doing like within the, the fabric in community with composting is like seeing that actually through the food that we eat and the waste that we create from that, you can like spawn the, these amazing creatures and then they, they can create something which then is... Like just gardener's gold, they call it. The kind of uh, the castings from um, a worm bin is is just um, amazing for growing other things, like more food. But also, um, there's lots of other ways that you can connect to that. Like, say, fermentation. You know, we are we all life basically sits on the base of the pyramid is back is bacteria and you know enzymes and you know yeast enzymes and those things that are creating so much of Japan's delicious food cuisine and you know there's umami flavors you know, our kin, the microbes, right? So doing um, that kind of f- f- fermentation just for fun and eat, like creating stuff that's nice to eat. Um, we've just got a kobusha batch going in the, in the company. Um, so these things are like, you know, I think that, you um, know, again, I'm leaning on so many, um, the wisdom of so many uh, great authors that I've read here, but, you know, the food, the idea of sharing food, making it together and sharing it together is um, it's sort of almost... Def- defining of the human species, the human condition. And um, that's one of the reasons that food became our focus for last year's one. Don't forget you can download those ones from our website as well. Um, that actually, you know, food is, is is an incredible opportunity for us to use our agency as, as, impl- as uh, consumers, but also sort of to reconnect. If we make the right decisions there with like local supply chains, human relationships with farmers that we've actually met, um, sort of using traditional practices, avoiding lots of packaging. That's the sort of, you know, and then sharing the food together, and using it as a vehicle for community and shared knowledge. It, we have an, that's an incredible opportunity for um, for, ch- for the kind of change that's needed, um, and it can then kind of those same principles can roll over into other areas of our lives as well. Um, so big. Yeah, as you can tell at Fabric, we're big into, big into food and the importance of food at many levels. <laughs> well,
0: it, I think it's key to everyone's happiness and well-being, for sure. Uh, thank you so much, James. That is our time. For- no way. Was so yes, fun. yes. <laughs> we've we've talked to so many different topics uh inside your report there's also so many amazing topics so i've added the link to your website one more time uh if you are free on the 30th please make your way to that amazing symposium uh fabric is organizing and uh, you can download your own copy with all the data that we've been talking about in this show uh, from the link as well. Thank you so much, James.
1: So just quickly about the event. It's at a place called Soil, appropriately enough. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, But you you can't just wander down there. I'm afraid that it's quite a, in terms of capacity, we would do need you to go to the PeerTix links and, and sign up there in order to make sure that you can come. But we'd love to see you.
0: Yeah, Thanks. definitely pre-register. Don't Thanks just show Thanks so much, up.
1: Joy. You're <laughs> an absolute star. Thanks so much for everything you do for this community and, and this change here in Japan. Connect, like you've helped me connect interesting people, and you're doing that all the time. So, congratulations on the success of your show. Thanks. Thank to-
0: you. I think you're That's number four hundred and fifty-five for the interviews. Can you That's believe crazy.
1: it? I mean, <laughs> it's amazing what you do.
0: Thank you you so much. much. Well, thank you, James. And I'm hoping to make it up there on the 30th myself and uh, hear all these amazing speakers and be a part of the positivity that you're promoting in Tokyo and around Japan. Thank you. Please,
1: please. We'd love to have you. Thanks so much, Joy.
0: And thank you. Big thanks for all the amazing comments, all the audience today. You guys were wonderful. I love all the insights and uh, questions that you had. And if we didn't have time to address them live, we'll comment below. So thanks so much for joining.
1: Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks for the comments and uh, interesting discussion topics from, from everyone out there. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you.